Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Shopify presents cool sheets from aha to lying awake while you bake isn't cool. I suffered from the wrong kind of hot in bed, heat-induced insomnia. That was my aha moment. Bed sheets that keep you cool. Then I thought, how do I even sell bed sheets? That's when I had the idea that made it all possible, signing up on Shopify. With the help of Shopify's intuitive online store creator, I started selling sustainable bamboo sheets that keep cool year-round. And my cool idea became a reality. Hot sleepers around the world rejoice. Shopify makes it simple to keep your cool while starting and growing your business. Start selling with Shopify today and join the commerce platform powering millions of businesses worldwide. From aha to anything is possible. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Start selling online today. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free22. Shopify.com slash free22. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, out of the many great coaches in NFL history, there are very few that were men of color. There's a reason for that. Opportunities. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. All right, let's go. NFL historians, you already know it. This isn't for you. This show is not for you. It's for those who don't know as much. So we are here to enlighten. But please correct me if I am wrong. I'm always here to learn. It's the Behind the Mic podcast. Your host, Michael Neal Jr., presented by Billy Up Sports, the Billy Up Sports podcast network, BillyUpSports.com. You can catch this great show as well as others on the Billy Up show lineup on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. So, again, I'm your host, Michael Neal Jr. Squeaky chair is prepared. So are my papers. We're going to move it quickly. References. Let's knock them out. WashingtonPost.com. We have a couple of articles by Michelle Kaufman and also one co-written by Mark Maskey and Adam Kilgore. ProFootballReference.com. TheAtlantic.com. Thanks to Jamel Hill. That's a good, very good article. The Undefeated. Jason Reed. Another great one. Great website, by the way. Go to TheUndefeated.com. CNNMoney.com. That area. An article by Ahiza Garcia. The book, 75 Seasons, Breaking the Color Barrier, a new book I just got and read on one Fritz Pollard. This was written by Frank Foster. I'm almost done with it. Very good book. 
Um, also, fritzpollard.org, AmericanFootballDatabase.com, and Raiders.com. There's a commercial. I know you've heard it. I know you've seen it on TV. I love Geico commercials. This one is the one when the man is driving in the middle of the desert. Looks like he's in Arizona somewhere and or in Utah, and he's singing this song with the hood ornament. Top is down. It's a song called Opportunities. You've got the looks. I've got the braids. Let's make lots of money. Yeah, that song is by the Pet Shop Boys. But it's so apt to what we're going to be talking about today. So we've been talking about NFL head coaching greats all this time. And with all of the guys we've talked about, Vince Lombardi, George Hallis, Tom Landry, even Bill Belichick, where are the minorities? I've, I haven't counted all the ones that we've talked about, but we've only talked about two minority head coaches, and they're both in the Hall of Fame, which is great. Tony Dungy and also Tom Flores. But we've talked about hardly any others. And there's a reason for that. If you think about sports and talk about the NFL, well, let's just start with the players. As early as the 1900s, the pre-NFL, we had Charles Fallis. He was the first black football player that was a professional. Then you had players that came after him, like Gideon Smith, Henry McDonald, and Charles Doc Baker. We'll get into these guys eventually. That's a show for another day. But there were not a lot of blacks that were welcome into professional sports. Just think about baseball. Baseball was very ugly about that. <laughs> And then, you know, you had the Negro Leagues for a reason, right? From 1920 to 1933. 1920 was the first year of the NFL, the AFPA. 1920 to 1933, there were 13 African Americans that played in the NFL. But from 1933 to 1946, there were zero. If you listened to any of the past shows, we've mentioned this a couple of times. And when you think about coaches, of course there were no black coaches, right? Well, there was at least one. But if you just think about the league, the evidence is there. I went on Pro Football Reference to see exactly how many pro football coaches, head coaches, that have been in the league. According to ProFootballReference.com, to this point right now, okay, it's Tuesday, June the, what, 28th, 29th, June the 29th, there have been 510 head coaches in the NFL. 25 of them have been hired as head coaches. There have been minorities, only 25, and another five minorities were interim head coaches. Why? If you just look at our country, for instance, we've only had one black president, one president of color, Barack Obama, and we currently have elected in the first mayor, uh, woman into the White House. Now, I'm not talking about just minorities, period, but then there's women as well. But we only had, uh, just now having our first woman, Kamala Harris, who was hired, hired, who was voted into office, who was a woman of color. And it's 2021. This is the mindset of our country, okay? Now, going to this article in the Washington Post, and I quote, from Mark Maskey and Adam Kilgore's article, 
Temple University human resource management professor, Patrick McKay, who has published award-winning research about workplace diversity, said the NFL's minority interview rules have failed because of the discretion of owners. The vast majority of these league's owners and top executives is white. Leaders across industries tend to hire people from their own social and racial groups. McKay said, whether they intend to or not. Now, I'm going to give two disclaimers, this disclaimers today. The first one, to all my white brethren and brother women, all right, my, you know, all of, all of my friends, you know me, I don't discriminate at all. And I, I feel like I know you well enough that I know that you don't discriminate yourselves. Take nothing from this. You know this isn't towards you. If this is something, any of you listeners, if you feel this way, okay, you feel this way. But there's nothing that I'm saying that is trying to pound against Caucasians or any other race or ethnic backgrounds of any people, okay, in this show today. But these are facts that I'm going to be discussing today. Yes, we're talking about this is the fourth part of the whistleblowers series. And we had to hit the minority coaches at some point because there's not enough of them, right? But here's the root of the problem. Who does the hiring? Owners and GMs. And when you have barely any minorities in upper management, that means owners and GMs, then you're not going to have a whole lot of minorities that are head coaches in the league. I mean, look at the, the proof is there. The Jacksonville Jaguars owner, Shad Khan, who's, he's Pakistani-American. Kim Bagula, who's married and is a co-owner with the, uh, of the Buffalo Bills. She's Asian-American herself. Now, we have five black GMs now, but go back a couple of years and there were zero. First, there was Chris Greer of the Miami Dolphins. Then the Cleveland Browns hired Andrew Barry. Now we have, this year, they hired Martin Mayhew of the Washington football team, Brad Holmes of the Detroit Lions, and Terry Fontenot of the Atlanta Falcons. And here's the other thing. Who do those GMs, do, which is part of their job, who do they hire? They hire offensive coaches. But here's the question. How many minority coordinators are there? Right now in the league, as far as Office of coordinators, those are the guys who mostly get these jobs in the office of football of today, right? There's only two. And both of which, eventually, they should be head coaches. Eric Bieniemy of the Kansas City Chiefs, many believe he should have landed the job. Maybe he didn't interview well, understand that. But if the man was white that was leading Patrick Mahomes and that Kansas City offense for Andy Reid, he would have gotten a job after the first year they got to the Super Bowl. Period. Maybe they couldn't, didn't even have to make the Super Bowl. He would have been hired already. But African-American coordinators and coaches, assistant coaches, have to work extra hard. Now, there are some examples, and I will give them, of some African-American or, might as well say it, just minorities who don't have to be a coordinator long in order to, or a coordinator at all at some point, to move on, right? But these are, this is where we are. Historically, 
you know, blacks are not being allowed to, to play quarterback back in the day, right? Or not even be a linebacker. And talking about in the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they didn't want you to play either one of those positions. Thinking man positions, because what? The mindset, same thing with coaching. We don't think that you can think on the same level as us. But I guess the question is, period, are they qualified? And we will never fully know until they're actually given an opportunity to prove themselves. Then there's the whole thing with the hiring process being totally unfair. Okay? So, like I said, they have to work extra hard and extra longer, even longer, to get a head coaching gig for the most part. And the funny part is, when we talk about these you know, ownerships and things like that, if there's more minorities that are getting opportunities to be owners as well as GMs, then that will also change. I had a buddy, I think is, I can't remember exactly who it was, who asked me about Jerry Jones and his children. Would they basically be following the footsteps of their father being the owner? Oh, God, yes. Of the Dallas Cowboys, they're sold up for years. And that's why it's hard to get in when you talk about being the minority, getting in that door to being an owner, because these teams, they're locked up in families for years and years. And then when they are sold, not a lot of consideration is given on that other end. So, and then here's the thing, as far as coaches are concerned, we don't want any token interviews. Don't, don't patronize me, right? Because we're doing, we're going to talk about the Rooney Rule, but don't hire just because. Hire because I could do the job. Hire not only because I have the money. Well, I'm going to get sold the team because I have the money, but the process even there is a little bit. Let's just say it is leaning in the other direction. So <laughs> moving right along. Coming up next, the first minority to get a shot at calling the shots. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. When Shopify says you can sell anywhere, oh, they mean it. Woo, hold up. Just got a new sale, order fulfilled, and shipped. Inventory level's good. Whoa, Shopify doesn't mind if you're at sea level. Or on top of the world. Oh, you can run and grow your business anywhere. Climbing mountains is never easy, but at least Shopify gives me all the tools I need for my business to hit new beats. Whether you're selling carabiners or crop tops, start selling with Shopify today and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. We've built the platform so you can keep climbing and grow your business to new heights. With Shopify, you really can sell to anyone from anywhere. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Start selling online today. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free 22. Shopify.com slash free 22. Shopify.com slash free 22. Internet connection required. Not available on mountaintops or seafloors. 
as we've discussed in the past, college football was king because college football was first. But then in the early 1900s, going into 1919, 1920, professional football, where you were getting paid, started to become a little bit more, let's just say, trendy. It wasn't popular yet because as we have talked about, pro football was looked at the same way you would look at the G League, let's say basketball fans. The NBA is here, that was college, and the G League is here, professional football, whether it gets stamped out or whatnot. So around 1920 is when, well, in 1920, not around 1920, is the first year of professional football. And it also was the first year of the Akron Pros being one of those teams that started it all. And one man was one of those big-time players for them that signed on the year before and became one of their star players. His name was Frederick Douglass Fritz Pollard. He was born in Chicago in 1894, and he attended Albert G. Lane Technical High School, where he excelled in baseball, football, and indoor as well as outdoor track. He was all Cook County as a shortstop his senior year. He was a three-time Cook County champion in track. And he was all Cook County in, guess what, football as a junior and a senior. Now, when it came to college, you have to understand the times. You didn't get recruited and you signed on for, what, three to four years of college like you see today. This man went to six different schools. Let me, uh, let me explain. Let me explain. In 1912, he showed up at Northwestern, and he wasn't even enrolled yet. But he made the mistake, as I've read, by basically telling the administrator, I'm just here to play football. Where have we heard that before, college basketball fans? And that was not the answer that they wanted. So he ended up having to leave Northwestern, and he was going to attend Dartmouth like his brother did. And on the way to Dartmouth, he fell in love with Brown University. But in order to get into Brown University, they were going to make a quote-unquote special exception for him. And what he had to do was pass two language courses. I'm still trying to figure out why. But these were the things he had to do in order to be admitted into the school. He had to pass a French course and a Spanish course. He passed the French one, failed the Spanish, and he did this at Columbia College. So he ended up going to work, not gonna go into details, but eventually he ended up back at Dartmouth. But Dartmouth, even though he was trying to play football there, they found out about that quote-unquote special exception, and he ended up having to leave. He ended up going, and these are some serious schools, y'all. <laughs> He ended up going to Harvard after that. Ended up suiting up for the first game for Harvard, but never got off the bench. And they knew that he could play because of his background in high school. But he wasn't allowed to play for obvious reasons. So he ended up going to Bates College because that game that they, the Harvard beat down Bates College, the coach, said, why would you sit 
on the bench where you can go win, you could go somewhere else and play. And that's exactly what he did. He ended up going to Bates College in Maine, didn't last long because it was too cold, even though he's from Chicago. So what ended up happening after that? Well, his brother had his brother, he had many brothers and sisters. I think he had seven siblings to be exact. And because of those credits that he missed out in high school that he could have gotten, uh, that he missed out in college that he could have gotten in high school, he ended up, his brother talked him into going back to high school. And it was a high school in Springfield, Massachusetts. He earned those missing credits and got into Brown. But it wasn't that easy for him to get into Brown because he ended up getting a scholarship from the Rockefeller family in 1915. So he got that scholarship money, became the first African-American to attend Brown University. And in 1916, his sophomore year, he ended up being the first African-American to play in the Rose Bowl on the football team. They were a very good team, a rain-soaked game. And if I was doing a college football history podcast, I'd have to tell you, that this was the game that they decided after this game, as a matter of fact, to reinstitute along with the Tournament of Roses, which was the tradition to try to bring uh, some eyes and attention to the state of California. They had done away with the football game because it was so lopsided. They decided to go back into it because of the Brown and State College Washington, known today as Washington State, Rose Bowl. And they lost that game. Brown did 14 to nothing. But that wasn't the end of his story. The man was one of the best runners in the country and became the second African-American to be named to the All-American team by none other than Walter Camp. And he was the first running back to be named to that All-American team, too. The first black man african-american man to be named to walter camp twice by the way and he went to harvard his name was william h lewis but also a note in 1916 had no idea about this in baltimore maryland march 22nd he blazed to a world record i'm quoting from the book breaking down the color barrier he blazed to a world record in the indoor 100 low hurdles in a time of 11 points four seconds his performance qualified him for that year's olympics scheduled for berlin but they were canceled as world war one continued to rage now do your homework people young guys young ladies do your homework because in 1917 apparently fritz kind of lagged on his studies and was declared academically ineligible for that season coming up so he ended up leaving school but guess what he started his coaching career. In 1918, he coached at Lincoln University, a school outside of Philadelphia. But check out this notable alumni that went there. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, poet Langston Hughes, and musician, and I love the Blues Brothers. I watch that movie sometimes before I go to sleep. Cab Calloway. They were all Lincoln graduates. That's pretty good. In 1919, he was noticed by the owner of the Akron Indians and he signed with them in 1919. The next year, as you've been told repeatedly, the NFL was formed. The APFA, the American Professional Football Association was formed and they changed their name from the Indians to the pros. And they were be they became behind the running of Fritz Pollard, by the way, 
the first champions of the NFL. They had an 8-0-3 record. Remember, they weren't playing a whole lot of games, but they were the champs and undefeated no less. In 1921 is where we were getting to. He was named the first African-American head coach in NFL history. Now, he was a co-head coach with the actual head coach, LG Tobin, but they did it together. He was instituting plays from his Brown days and directing the offense. The man was good at what he did. Now, keep this in mind. He's already in his 20s, by the way. He's around, what, 25, 26 years old. He wasn't the 21, 22-year-old that just got into the NFL. These guys were a little bit older and had a little bit more uh, years up under their belt. He also played for these teams in 22, the Milwaukee Badgers. And from 23 to 24, he played with the Gilberton Catamounts. The Hammond Pros had two stints there in 23 and 25. And the Providence Steamroller also in 1925. And some of these teams were traveling teams to keep this in mind. And as you can hear, the Akron Indians, they went back from being the pros to the Indians in 1925 and 26. And he ended up back there as well. They were traveling teams, but as you can see, a lot of these teams don't even exist anymore, right? So he basically, if you know anything about his story, and he was not given a whole lot of leash because around that time, they were trying to get the blacks out of the league. Look, I'm just here telling, the, telling facts. And eventually, they had gotten all the blacks out of the league by 1933. But they bounced around and didn't have the same opportunities as white players. So in 1928, he had a he went and started a team called the Chicago Black Hawks, not the Black Hawks, the hockey team. But in, and in 1930, he had another squad, a barnstorming team. Think Harlem Globetrotters, people, because he was trying to play against some of the white counterparts, which they didn't want to include them in playing not all the teams played against them and eventually they folded because of the great depression they folded i think in 1932 the brown bombers did but what you have to notice is how many opportunities that first plot pollard and other black players had at that time they were quickly dismissed bounced around from team to team now not to knock george hallis okay because the man from 1920 to 29 he was the what the whole he was the coach the owner and he played right look at the difference and they weren't allowed to do those things as minorities and he started on both he started i believe on both sides of the ball and, and i understand he was also a co-owner uh, with D dutch Thurman all the way up to 1931 but you can see the difference and the opportunities so as far as being a professional football coach there were various accounts that indicated According to ProFootballHallOfFame.com, that Pollard was uh, not—he was a co-coach of the Milwaukee ba uh, Badgers with Al Garrett for part of the 22 season. He also coached, like I said, the non-NFL team, which was Gilberton in 1923, and is to believe—is believed, excuse me—to have had some coaching duties with Hammond, the Hammond Pros in 1922, uh, excuse me, in 1923 as well. And some of the other honors and interesting things that I saw, Pollard's son, Fritz Pollard Jr., he won the bronze medal for the 110-meter hurdles at the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin. What a turnaround. 
pops wasn't able to go and but the son was able to go and meddle that's great then there's also the fritz pollard alliance a group that promotes minority hiring throughout the nfl and then at brown university the black coaches and administrators co-sponsor the annual fritz pollard award which is presented to the college or the professional coach that is chosen by the bca as coach of the year and in 2005 he was posthumously i hope i said that word right elected to the pro football hall of fame in 2005 now again at the top of the show we was talking about the pet shop boys and that song opportunities and that song was released in march of 1986 two months later fritz pollard passed away at the age of 92 Three years later, the Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 1989 was announced. And another significant name in NFL history was among those finalists. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is. So they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. In 1989, the Pro Football Hall of Fame class was announced. There were 15 finalists and the four who got in are as follows as follows <laughs> Mel Blount cornerback Pittsburgh Steelers Terry Bradshaw his teammate quarterback Pittsburgh Steelers Willie Wood defensive back mostly for the Green Bay Packers and Art Shell, left tackle for the Oakland Raiders. Al Davis hired this man the exact same year, and he became the first African-American head coach, just not player, not co-coach, but head coach in NFL history. The first full-time guy. That's significant. It is significant. The Raiders selected Shell in the third round of the 1968 NFL Draft out of Maryland Eastern Shore just to get a little bit of history on Art Shell, along with quarterback Ken Stabler in that draft, by the way. In college, he played both offensive and defensive line. 15 years he played for the Raiders. 207 games, 169 starts at left tackle, playing side-by-side with fellow Hall of Famers like Jim Otto and Gene Upshaw. Shell was selected for eight Pro Bowls and was named first team All-Pro twice. Twice he was named second team All-Pro. He played in 23 playoff games and won two Super Bowls. In 1976, Super Bowl XI, and in 1980, he was on that offensive line in Super Bowl XV, where the Raiders became the first wildcard team to win the Super Bowl. A lot of firsts in that game. By the way, back in 76, when they won uh, 11 in the Rose Bowl, He was blocking that great Vikings defensive end, Jim Marshall, who was a Hall of Fame finalist, never did get in, hasn't gotten in yet. But he had no tackles, no assists, no sacks. 
He retired in 1982 and became the offensive line coach for the Raiders from 83 to 88. The Raiders hired him, of course, Al Davis in 1989 to be the head coach, and that lasted till 1994. While he was there, in 1990, he was the AFC Coach of the Year and became the first African-American to lead his team to the AFC Championship game. They lost to the Buffalo Bills that year on uh, en route to the Super Bowl. In 1994, Al Davis fired him after a 9-7 season. Not a good look. But here's the thing. Al Davis later would say that that was a mistake. And it was. It was. Too soon. Too soon. He was also the uh, offensive line coach for the Chiefs and the Falcons. He returned in 2006 to the Raiders and they were 2 and 14. Not great. Not great. Lifetime record was 56 and 51. 2 and 3 in the playoffs. But I think something that has to be considered is the fact that a lot of these coaches I'm going to name and Shell is included in this number, they didn't really have a lot to work with. Not a lot of great quarterbacks. Not a lot of great offenses. Some of them they were shaky defensively. But they coached a lot of these teams up is what I noticed. They did. Even in their failures, they coached a lot of these teams up. So this is what we're going to do next. We have to talk about the Rooney Rule. This was instituted in 2003. So, and I quote from Jamel Hill's article. And the name of that article, NFL owners have a problem with coaches of color. Now, the Rooney Rule was named for the former Pittsburgh Steelers owner who led the committee that proposed it. And it requires teams to interview at least one minority candidate for head coaching jobs and executive positions. While well-intentioned, this policy can't possibly fix the deep-seated culture of exclusion that plagues the league. Going back to what we talked about earlier in the show, you have to have more minorities in places of power. You have to have more minorities in the upper management, more minority owners, more minority GMs in the hiring process it will actually be a lot more fair. Like I said, the key is, is how many minority coaches do you know, especially blacks that get a second or even a third job. Now, there are some that get that and they've had it, but the lease is, leash is a lot shorter. There are coaches that I like to call duct tape. And duct tape means that you're just in place until the guy that they really want to hire is available or somebody else. I've seen them black and I've seen them white. It doesn't matter who they are. And a lot of these coaches, they're putting failing situations. That's to say that they're not given ample time to let the team improve. And here's the other thing that I've never liked is the coach that gets fired right before they have that first-round pick that happens to be the quarterback that they needed. I can go down the line of some of these, these guys if they had gotten a little bit more time and had some of them, just going to be honest with you, been smarter in their decisions, then they probably would still be there depending. But you have guys like Todd Bowles. He stayed with the Jets all the way up to the point where they fired him and drafted Sam Darnold. Now, I'm not saying Sam Darnold was going to be the savior of the Jets. Maybe, just maybe, if he had a better quarterback to begin with, things would have gotten a lot better, gone a lot better. Tony Dungy 
when he was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Again, his first year in his 12-year coaching career was the only year he had a losing season. They were 6-10. and 10. After that, they never lost uh, more games than he won. And he went to Super Bowl. So he had Brad Johnson, a vet, had he had that guy. And I love Trent Dilfer. And I love Sean King. But Sean King came in because, what, Dilfer was hurt and ended up leading the team to the NFC Championship game. And they lost a close game to the team that eventually lost the Super Bowl with the St. Louis Rams. Give a guy a little bit more, uh, uh, at least understand that there's a microwave mentality. We have to win now. We have to win quickly. Because white coaches, they get fired just as fast as black ones, but the black ones don't get as many opportunities to get fired. You know what I'm saying? Hugh Jackson, I think he shot himself in the foot in Cleveland. But let's just say if he had gone with Baker Mayfield or at least it went on and had this man put into the starting lineup, woulda, coulda, shoulda. But I think they have the right coach now. But Hugh Jackson, yeah. Anthony Lynn, Justin Herbert, he had his, his quarterback. Let him stick around with this quarterback so he can continue to develop. Don't fire the man so early. You've got a good quarterback now. What did he have at first? You know what I mean? Let Give them a chance to fail with something good on the table. Please, these coaches, they had no quarterbacks. They had some shaky quarterbacks. Heck, even Herm Edwards, he had his chances, just to be honest with you, with the Jets as well as with the Kansas City Chiefs, and some of the decision-making was shaky, as much as I love Herm, as much as I love Herm. But... Hey, these are the ABCs of being a black coach in the NFL. And things could have been a lot better. But you see the example of Art Shell. Art Shell was fired way too early. And he did a lot with very little. And I can say that with a lot of confidence. Coming up in the last segment, there's one guy that I do believe will be the next African-American head coach to enter into the NFL Hall of Fame. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team, Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is, so they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. All right, this show is about a wrap, and I have to get to my next head coach highlight, Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin, one of the better coaches in the league, has been so for going on 15 years. Mike Tomlin, in 1994, he was a wide receiver at William & Mary and earned second-team All-Yankee Conference as their wide receiver. In 95, he began his coaching career. He was at BMI as a wide receiver's coach. He was even here in the state of Tennessee at Memphis as an assistant in 96, the year I graduated high school. And he was with Arkansas in 1997, excuse me, Arkansas State in 1997, and coached defensive backs in 98. In 1999, he went on to the NFL. 
Cincinnati defensive backs coach. 2000. 2001, he was one of many African-Americans on that staff. Something about Tampa Bay and, and minorities. It's great. It's really great. Some, some really good coaches came out of Tampa Bay under Tony Dungy. And speaking of Tony Dungy, while he was the defensive backs coach for Tampa Bay, Tomlin was a part of that Super Bowl 37 the next year after Dungy was fired. The Bucks had a record, five interceptions and three pick sixes. Mike Tomlin coached that bunch. In 2006, he was the defensive coordinator for the Minnesota Vikings. Now, remember I said there were some coaches that moved through the system quickly. He was one of them. He was a coordinator for, count it, one season. And in 2007, only one year after being a coordinator, he did an interview with the Miami Dolphins as well, who hired Cam Cameron, and they went 1-15 that year, and he was fired after that one season. The Pittsburgh Steelers made him their next head coach after Bill Cowher had retired. The 10th African-American coach in NFL history. He, he and along with Dick LeBeau, they ended up having the top defensive uh, defensive unit in 2007. They were 10 and 6. They won the AFC North two seasons in a row. In 2008, he became the youngest coach to win the Super Bowl and the third African American to get his team to the Super Bowl. Of course, Lovie Smith was first and he went on to face Tony Dungy, who was second in Super Bowl 41. After winning Super Bowl 43, he became the youngest to win and the crazy part is he was an assistant coach for that Tampa Bay team, right? Well, when Tampa Bay won Super Bowl 37, John Gruden at age 39 was the youngest head coach to have won. Tomlin was younger at 36 years old. Of course, the game that I'd rather forget in 2010, Super Bowl 45 in Dallas, the Green Bay Packers, they defeated the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yes, I'm a Steelers fan, but you know, that's someone I'm just having a hard time letting go of. But they got the, he got them back to the Super Bowl now. Keep in mind that the Pittsburgh Steelers, Cowboys last year, the year before, 2005, they won it. 2006, they missed out on the playoffs. And they weren't as great as they were the year before. So it took Tomlin to get them back to prominence, which he did, even though they lost that Super Bowl some years ago. Now, for 15 years, he has been the head coach. He's going into his 15th year, right? 14 consecutive non-losing seasons. He's never had a losing season. Yes, they finished 8-8 eight and eight one year. Okay, they didn't have a losing season. His record, 145-78-1. and 8-8 eight eight in the playoffs. Mm. But I think he's a Hall of Fame head coach. That's part of my opinion. But the disclaimer, the second disclaimer before I end this show that I have to give. Not all these guys were head coaching material. Okay, don't think I'm saying just because they're black they should have been coaches. And No, not everybody's a head coach. I don't care what color you are. I'm about to go through all of these coaches. Now, number one, after Fritz Pollard, Tom Flores actually wasn't the second minority head coach in NFL history. I learned something over these last two days. Anybody heard the name Tom Fears? Raise your hand. If you're a deep, 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 deep Rams fan, 
you should know who Tom Fears is. Hall of Fame wide receiver with the Rams, right? From 1948 to 1956. I had no idea he was Mexican-American. Had no idea that he was actually the first Latino head coach in NFL history. He was the head coach for the New Orleans Saints from 67 to 1970. I did not know that. Yes, Tom Flores, yes, he's Latino. Here's another thing that I learned. I didn't notice that Wayne Fonts was a minority. He's Portuguese. He's a Portuguese family. I read a really funny story about him being on a plane and a Portuguese woman was sitting across from him and his wife. Now he pronounces his name Fonts. He changed it in high school according to his brother because it sounded cooler. They say Fontes, but the Portuguese woman said that it's actually, he, he wrote his name, his last name on a piece of paper, showed it to the woman and he said, ma'am, how do you pronounce this name? And it's pronounced Funches. Anybody Michigan Wolverine fans? And you know Darren Funches, the, the tight end? Yeah, it's pronounced Funches. <sighs> Who knew? Who knew? But anyway, Wayne Fonts, he had his good years. If you think about Detroit, you think about a losing organization. But in his last four of his last six years, they were in the playoffs. And they were the last team, of course, to have a playoff win in 1991. Of course, then there was Art Shell. Denny Green, we, we've highlighted him. His career record, 113-94. And he had a 4-8 playoff record. But in 10 years in Minnesota, they had eight playoff appearances. And he did that with eight, excuse me, seven different quarterbacks you tell me who else is going to do that not too many coaches could do that he was a great coach he wasn't he didn't have great teams i mean he didn't take his teams to super bowls i understand that but i think he was a great coach he really was then there's ray rhodes ray rhodes i'll just say this when he was in philadelphia he had his playoff he had uh, what one two playoff wins he didn't coach very long but I don't think that he got long enough of a shot. But if you believe anything that you read, he had a hard-nosed style being a former NFL player and a defensive back. He actually played wide receiver before he played defensive back. They got tired of his hard coaching, you know, his hard ways of coaching. And that that kind of put a wedge between him, between him and his team. But it had been nice if he had been around for Donovan McNabb course they fire him the year before they draft McNabb I mean who knew right and even the one year he coached the Green Bay Packers at the end of his career his head coaching career they were eight and eight not terrible not great either understand that Herman Edwards for all of the things that we could say well Herm he was a coach that could get the best out of you and I probably liked him even more on ESPN. His, his teams weren't the best in the world. But at the same time, the man, I think that all of these coaches could have benefited for, from a better roster. But I can't hide the fa fact that some of his decisions, they didn't turn out great. <laughs> okay, I'll leave it at that. Speaking of that, you have guys like Marvin Lewis. I think that his biggest faux pas was not winning playoff game didn't win a playoff game with Cincinnati and it's the Cincinnati Bengals right Lovey Smith got his team to a Super Bowl Romeo Cornell I think he was more coordinator than coach 
That's just me. That's my opinion. Wasn't great in Cleveland. He wasn't. Of course, then there was Mike Tomlin, who was number 10. Mike Singletary, I don't think that he was a head coach material. I think he was more player than coach. Then there's Jim Caldwell. So Caldwell coached Indianapolis, Tampa Bay, and Detroit, right? So after Dungy, Tony Dungy retires after the Super Bowl win in 2008, 2009, Caldwell becomes the head coach. He's one of the few offensive coaches that were black. Denny Green was another one of those, right? Well, they won. They went to Super Bowl 44. Caldwell was on the staff for Super Bowl 41 as the quarterback coach. Very significant, right? Well, the last year, even after they did all of that winning, it did have a slight decline in Indianapolis, especially when Peyton Manning goes down because of his neck injuries and has this surgery. And they're 2 and 14. And then they fire him with the quick trigger. And guess who they drafted next year? Andrew Luck. I'm just trying to say. And then, of course, fast forward a couple more seasons. He's the offensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens. And they beat San Francisco in Super Bowl 47. I'm just trying to tell you the guy probably should have had another job. You had other guys like Raheem Morris and Leslie Frazier. And then I get to Ron Rivera, another Latino coach who got his shot after being the Chicago Bears linebacker who won Super Bowl 20 with that squad, the 85 Bears squad, and ends up being the defensive coordinator. Happened to be one of the better Bear defenses in the league around that time he was the coach and was instrumental in helping Lovey Smith get the Bears to the Super Bowl because the show wasn't Rex Grossman. <laughs> he also helped the Carolina Panthers as head coach when he finally got his first shot. He had the MVP, Cam Newton. Yes, they lost to Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos, but he got that team there. A lot of injuries, and, I mean, the guy still has a winning record in the end. In 10 seasons, they've had five playoff appearances. And his record, career-wise, 83-72-1. And if you remember the Super Bowl champion, Buccaneers playoff game against the Washington football team, they kind of struggled to a win because Washington, who was down to their third-string quarterback, what's his name, Heineke? Yeah, bless you. I mean, Rivera had his team prepared. Give them a better squad, a better quarterback, they probably would have even won that game possibly against a very, very good Buccaneers defense, right? And the guy overcame cancer. Todd Bowles, Hugh Jackson, Anthony Lynn, Vance Joseph, and Steve Wilkes. I think they got the quick trigger. I'm not sure about Wilkes, though, just to be honest. Didn't know enough about him. And then there's Brian Flores. He's not black, y'all. He's Latino. He's actually the fourth Latino coach to be hired in NFL history. His people are from Honduras, okay? So at age 23, this is another one of those guys. He had to stay... He had to work a long time, but he was never really a coordinator, just to be honest with you. At the age of 23, he's been with the New England Patriots since that time in 2004. Started off as a scouting assistant, then ended up being a scout in 2006. And then 08, he was fired, finally put on the staff from 2008 to 2018. And he even was calling plays. And so far with the Miami Dolphins, he's had two seasons. And people thought that they were going to tank in 2019. 
They ended up 5-11. and 11. But if you don't know the story, they started off 0-7. Yeah, they're tanking. They're tanking for the Knicks quarterback. No, tanking for Tua, who they ended up with anyway. <laughs> they finished the season 5-4. and four. In 2020, with going back and forth between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Tua Tagovailoa, they went 10-6. Barely missed the playoffs. They finished second in the AFC East behind the Buffalo Bills. Not bad. I, I'm really hoping this guy, I think this guy can coach. He can. I think he could be one of the great ones if he finds a stable quarterback. He'll have that defense prepared. And I believe that he and Chris Greer, they're going to put together a good squad. They just need to find the right QB. We don't know if they've had it yet. If they have it yet, we'll find out. And then finally, we have the first Muslim American head coach in football history, Robert Salah. We'll see how he does with the Jets. All I know is, as a defensive coordinator, he had that 49ers defense humming. Humming. And the last coach that was hired, David Culley. He spent 26 years as an assistant for several teams. And he came from Baltimore, from the Ravens, and now is the head coach of the Houston Texans. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how the Deshaun Watson thing goes. I'll leave that alone. But all in all, you have a lot of coaches that just needed opportunities. A lot of opportunities. Again, 510 head coaches in the history of pro football. And only 26 of them were minorities. Hmm. See how many opportunities they get going forward. Hopefully things change. Again, thanks for listening to the Behind the Mic podcast. Again, you can catch this show and all the great shows on the Belly Up Sports podcast network. You catch me on Speaker, excuse me, Spreaker, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your wife, your husband, your kids. Y'all listen to my show or I'll find your house. I'm out. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.